first of all, I'd like to define the title because we need to understand what we mean by reincarnation and the evolution of consciousness. First of all, reincarnation comes from the Latin incarno, to make flesh. And so therefore incarnation means to take a body. Reincarnation suggests repeated incarnations, many, many lifetimes taking different bodies each time. And it's impossible really to look at reincarnation without looking at karma as well. Um, this is inextricably linked with the idea of reincarnation. It's the karma that requires us to be reborn each time. Karma is said to be similar to the law of cause and effect. So for each and every action there is a response or a reaction. If, for example, we think positive thoughts and perform positive deeds for others, then we're said to reap good karma. But if we act negatively, we think negatively about others, or do anything that's negative, then we're supposed to reap bad karma, and things will come back to us accordingly. So at every moment of our lives, we are actually creating karma for ourselves, not just through our actions, but through our thoughts as well. So it's very important to think in positive terms. And as a hypnotherapist, so many people come to me with problems, and basically they're all caused by negative thinking, and I have to encourage them to retrain their minds and how they think about themselves and about others. And this is a very healing thing in itself. Sometimes karma rebounds very quickly. In fact, the more you develop spiritually, the quicker the karma. And so you just have to think about a thought about someone, you'll immediately bang a knee or hit your head on something. You've probably experienced things like that yourself where something rebounds very, very quickly and makes you aware that you're thinking incorrectly. Many of my clients in hypnotherapy, they have skin problems as well, and most of these are due to wrongly thinking about themselves. In fact, they are punishing themselves because they are thinking negative thoughts or their thought um, patterns are not suitable, and therefore it comes out in their bodies. And it's very, very common, and it's very easy to cure skin problems just by stopping people from thinking in certain ways about themselves and about others. So the thought processes are very important. Sometimes, however, karma is stored up for the future. So you might not get the repercussions immediately, and you might look around you and see someone who's behaving quite badly, you know, robbing other people of money or whatever, and just not behaving in a very moral way. And you think, well, why aren't they being punished for their actions? They're getting away with it. But it could be that later on in their lives, they're going to get the repercussions. So they might have a period where all seems to be working nicely, but they may have to pay for it later. Similarly, they might even wait for another lifetime when someone is doing all those rotten things to them instead. So that someone might then start taking what they have worked hard for. So there is a balancing, a sort of like a divine judgment going on there really. Nobody escapes this fundamental law, I'm afraid, and we pay for all of our actions and our thoughts, so we might as well live our lives in a way that's conducive to good karma, that is actually um, conducive to the betterment of those around us, because we are creating new karma all the time. Now, there are three factors when we're born that determine the sort of karma we're going to experience in this lifetime. The first one is that which is allotted to this lifetime. So we've had many, many lifetimes, all of us, and we've created an enormous reservoir of karma. We've all been through the various stages of evolution and we've all killed other people and we've all probably eaten them as well in the cannibal stages, in the early stages. So that gives us a lot of karma we have to work through. So that you can't take all of the karma in one lifetime. You have to give a little bit here and a little bit there, whatever the person can actually cope with. So this time, you have your allotted karma. And whatever difficulties you have in this lifetime, you're either creating it as you go along, or you are actually working through past karma. The second type of karma is the reserve karma, which is this backlog of karma I was mentioning from the many different lifetimes. And the third one is the one I've already talked about, which is karma that's created this lifetime. So basically, our actions create this karmic repercussion of having to be reborn, but also our desires and our attachments create karma. So if you're too attached to material things, for example, um, and you desire lots of different material things or people, other people, you want to possess them, you are actually creating karma. So many of the great teachings 
they do suggest that if you are detached, use discrimination and dispassion in everything you do, then you're not going to create new karma for yourself. So this is why I'll go through all the religions in a moment, um, telling you the little bits that link into this idea of karma. You could look at your astrological chart to find out what sort of karma you're working through this time. And everybody's chart is different. It's like a blueprint that you bring through with you when you're born. So this one shows an individual whose sun is up in the sign of Virgo. And it's very close to Neptune. So this person is very, very sensitive, very psychic type of person. And these two planets are in very good aspect. The blue lines are what we call good beneficial aspects good aspect to Uranus. Uranus represents change. So this person has the ability to change things around him in a harmonious way because it's a good aspect. And so he's quite a bright, lively sort of person as a result of that. He's not afraid of change. And the changes take place in his life quite readily. And he will create changes around him as well. Another good pattern in this chart or beneficial pattern is this blue triangle of energy you see here. We call that a minor grand trine um, and it consists of several planets which are in trine to a third planet which happens to be the moon down here and that's Mercury and Mars. And then the third planet that's involved is Venus and his ascendant in the sign of Libra. This gives a lot of charm. Um, Mercury Mars gives a lot of energy to the mind and the aspect of the moon shows that he's got a very good um, link between his conscious mind and his subconscious mind. So although he's a very rational person, he's able to use his intuition as well. And the fact that Venus is involved is a very creative part of it. It's a charming sort of person, someone who's very diplomatic and tactful because Venus is in the diplomatic relationship sign of Libra. So that minor grand trine is... Um, a sign of great success in life because this person has the ability to move around on all levels of society and to create a good impression because he's quite a talker. So we've got Mercury Mars here involved in this nice easy triangle of energy um, but we've also got what we call an opposition and you see another triangle here which we call a T-square. Now this is, these planets are opposite one another and this third planet over here or fourth planet is actually at a 90 degree angle to the opposition and that's why we call it a T-square. This gives quite a lot of tension in that person's life. So the Mercury-Mars conjunction, although it can be used beneficially in the minogram trine, the skill of moving around, the opposition to Jupiter means that he does everything to excess. So we have Mercury-Mars which is the mental energy, the desire to move around, lots of nervous energy. Opposite Jupiter, it means that he's a bit too freedom-loving and he's going to be moving too fast at all times. He's going to be rushing around and he'll probably have quite a few minor accidents throughout his life because Uranus is a very accident-prone planet in conjunction with Jupiter and Mercury-Mars. So he will probably have car accidents. All sorts of things are telling him, come on, slow down a bit. So his problem is one of speed. So if he's a very fast person, he's got a quick acting mind, his body's always on the go, then it's going to be very difficult for him to centre himself and, and develop his consciousness in that way. You know, just too speedy, too keen to be out and socialise. He doesn't want to sit and think and go inside and really think about things. So you can see somebody's karma very clearly from their birth chart, what they're dealing with this lifetime, but you can't necessarily see their stage of evolution. Right, so that's one interesting way of looking at what people's problems are. Another interesting way of helping other people with problems is, as I said, through hypnotherapy, and I happen to be a hypnotherapist as well as an astrologer, some people come to me and they're really, really unhappy. You know, they're in the depths of despair. They're almost suicidal. And sometimes you can't really resolve their problems merely by taking them through their present situation, taking them back through their childhood. The theory says, oh, if you take them back into their childhood, you'll find all of these, source of all of their problems. That's not necessarily so. 
sometimes people have to go back into a previous existence to find the source of their problem because it may be a problem they've carried forward, karma they've had from a previous lifetime. As soon as that happens, then that person's problems disappear. It's as if by magic. Once they know where it came from, that is enough to resolve the problem. There was one man who came to me, for example, and obviously I never mention any names because it's all confidential, but he absolutely flipped when his mother uh, had come to meet him at the school gate when he was about seven. And his mother suddenly drove off realising she didn't have enough petrol. So she just drove off thinking she would have enough time to get the petrol and come back. And he flew into this massive panic attack at that young age. And really it was in excess of the situation, so I knew it must come from somewhere else. So I said to him, right, I want you to go back now to the very, very first time you were left and you were in despair. And he went back to a previous lifetime in Holland where he was a seaman and his boat he was a French seaman, his boat was going off back to France and he was stood at the harbour, you know, with nothing. They'd gone without him because he was too late. And he ended up in a pub with the local people in Holland and they were very cruel to him and they beat him up and they threw him in the quay where he drowned. So for him, being left was death, reminded him of the way he died in that previous lifetime. And once he relived that, he was cured. You know, he didn't have this anxiety anymore, it was just gone. And he was like a different person. So sometimes you do need to go right back to see the source of a problem because patterns are repeated and repeated sometimes throughout lifetimes. Right, so major world religions show an awareness of reincarnation and karma. So I'd like to give you a few quotes really that I've made out of various books on the different religions. The first one is about Buddhism. On the question of reincarnation, it says, it is lust, passion, and the thirst for existence that yearn for pleasure everywhere, leading to a continual rebirth. Sensuality, desire, selfishness, all these things are the origin of suffering. On karma, it says, since it's impossible to escape the result of our deeds, let us practice good works. So, you have to do good for others, <clears throat> so that you're not creating bad karma. Buddhists follow what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, which is a moral code, the observance of which is intended to bring relief from pain, misery and sorrow, and to create good karma. And the Eightfold Path gives eight little tips on how to lead their lives. The first one is right belief. The second is right thought. The third is right speech. The fourth is right action. The fifth, the right means of livelihood. The sixth, right exertion the seventh, right remembrance, and the eighth, right meditation. So it's a way of life for them, you know, not creating any bad karma and creating new karma for the future. Another religion, Sikhism, on reincarnation and karma, they say men do not become saints or sinners merely by words, but they carry deeds with them wherever they go. As one sows, so does one reap. Men come and go by the wheel of birth and death by controlling the mind and the body through perseverance and the control of the sense and thoughts one is freed from karma and the necessity of reincarnation then looking at Hinduism this is the body that goes on and on from birth to birth as the basis and vehicle of the reincarnated personality it departs from the sheath of the growth body at the time of death and then determines the nature of the new existence for within it are left the traces like scars or furrows of all the perceptions, acts, desires and the movements of will of the past of the heritage of habits and inclinations so it sounds quite grim doesn't it like scars that are left on you and you bring them through the next time when you're reborn the Hindus give some tips really on how to get off the wheel of death and rebirth. Disciplined men freed from desire and anger who have disciplined their thoughts and have realized the self with a capital S find eternal freedom in divine consciousness everywhere. That's from the Bhagavad Gita. Therefore remaining unattached always do the action worthy of performance. Engaging in action truly unattached man attains to the supreme 
So there again, it's non-attachment, you know, being detached from whatever you do. Do things without looking for reward for whatever you're doing. Then from the Upanishads, the self is not attained through teaching, intelligence or learning. Verily, the self that is in the three states of waking, dreaming and dreamless sleep is to be understood as one and the same. For him who has transcended this triad of states, there is no rebirth. Being verily one, the self of all beings and elements is present in every being. It is beheld onefold and manifold simultaneously, like the moon reflected in water. So the self here is that which is to be found in all things, but it's just the unity that lies behind all things. Christianity is slightly different because the idea of reincarnation was written out of the Bible in the 6th century. One of the popes apparently didn't approve of it. He didn't like to think he'd come back as something other than a pope, you know, a very important person. And of course in those days the Bible was written and rewritten by monks and religious people. But there are still some references to karma. In Matthew, for example, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Then from Hosea, for they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. So they're all direct references to actions, bringing repercussions. And of course, in Christianity we have the Ten Commandments, which was a moral code given to Moses. It's not like the Buddhist one, where people are told to do these things because of a reason at the end, that they're not going to get any bad karma. Um, because Christians believe that heaven and hell are the reward or punishment for their actions and thoughts. There is one exception to that though. Within the Catholic Church there is a group called the Liberal Catholics. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, But they they actually don't believe in heaven and hell as a place where you go and they don't believe in one lifetime. They actually do believe in reincarnation and karma even though they go along with the usual sacraments of the church. They're much more liberal in their view. They accept things like astrology, which the ordinary church doesn't. Right, so the liberal Catholic Church was closely associated with the early theosophical movement, and they took upon a lot of the teachings of that. In fact, one of the leaders of the theosophical movement became a bishop in the early liberal Catholic Church. And of course, it's the Theosophical Society that was the vehicle for bringing the teachings of reincarnation and karma to this country at the end of the last century. Madame Blavatsky, um, with the help of one of the Tibetan masters, wrote several books on the evolution of man, which are rele- quite relevant to this talk. It's about the um, evolution of consciousness. Um, she helped found the Theosophical Society um, so that they could expand these teachings from the East. Now, one way of experiencing the previous lifetimes we've been talking about um, is through hypnosis. There are other ways, I've heard. For example, Shirley MacLaine had a lot of experiences of previous lifetimes, and she did it through acupuncture. So I can't say I've tried that myself, but um, she seems to have had some very interesting experiences that way. Um, But I do have some examples of my own that I can go by, because it isn't a concept that you can actually... um, persuade someone to believe. They either believe it or they don't. They either accept it or they don't. The only thing that will help them to believe in such a thing is to experience it for themselves. That's all you can do really. Um, But I know the first time I became interested in hypnosis and reincarnation was about, I suppose, ten years ago now, when someone um, put me under hypnosis because they were writing a book about reincarnation and they thought I might have some interesting experiences for the book. So I did this quite readily. Um, a bit tongue-in-cheek at the time. I wasn't really sure what would happen. And I was very surprised to find out that I'd had a few previous lifetimes as a man. You know, as a woman, it's sort of a strange thing, isn't it? Because we tend to think, you know, of ourselves as being a separate sex. And at that time, I wasn't really um, au fait with a lot of the ideas I accept readily now. Um, So there I was, different lifetimes in different sexes, which was quite confusing, realising that I was learning different things from those experiences. And if that wasn't enough to take at the time, I then discovered that I'd had previous lifetimes that weren't human as well. And that really was quite mind-boggling at the time, because um, in one of them, I was more like an amoeba-like thing. And the Earth wasn't solid then, and it was as if I was 
just this sort of nebulous mass and I would bounce around like a ball um, if I wanted to move quickly it was a wonderful state of freedom there was consciousness there very strongly and the further back in time you go the much clearer the experiences are than say previous memories of this lifetime they're really vivid and I, if I wanted to go fast I had to just zip along by elongating my form and just zipping through the air at one level if I wanted to just play around I'd just like be a ball bouncing and the way in which I used to reproduce was splitting in two just like an amoeba and yet this was just as the earth was becoming more solid it was still in a gaseous state and so it was a very strange experience but very sort of liberating I felt really free not having a heavy body and going back even further than that even more fantastic I thought at the time I found myself being a pink mist and then I realised that I was the aura of Venus of the planet Venus and I was trying to persuade or impress my thoughts on these animal type things in the centre and they were all huddled together and they had very not a definite form they were just sort of hairy like hairy animals as you know I can describe them and I was thinking gosh why don't you evolve faster you know I was getting really quite angry with these things because they were taking such a long time thousands of years to do anything you know so that to me was quite uh, an amazing experience and I thought well, I'm not sure I believe this you know it's too fantastic and then the same friend, the hypnotherapist, asked if I would type out all the experiences of the other people he was regressing. And I found that their experiences were even more fantastic than mine. And this became very, very interesting because I started to think about, you know, where did we come from? You know, what happened before we had human form? And then I started to think about Sufi literature I'd read about. 20 years ago and they had said we all go through the stages of the mineral kingdom the vegetable kingdom and the animal before we could become human you see and at the time I thought well that's a bit much I can't take that and I began to think more seriously about that idea and then these other people had experiences of being things like gas giants so they were like giant masses that were made up of lots of little bubbles or globules and all they did was stay in one place for hundreds of years and this was apparently during the Atlantean Lemurian time in the development of the earth and there were just these gas giants and then later on there were giants that actually walked around so these fairy stories that you hear actually are true they were true at one stage in our development because there were giants that roamed the earth and apparently it wasn't until they had the great flood when Atlantis went down that all the giants were destroyed eventually so they were still lingering around at that time so it's a very interesting subject right so I'll just show you now another overhead which is based upon what the Theosophical Society teaches and is to be found in the books um, written by Madame Blavatsky and these were the books that um, brought the knowledge from the East to the West now this one explains that we are part of a chain you can't see it. I'll just push it up in a moment but evolution comes from this globe here which is A down to B down to C down to D at the bottom and then up and at the moment we're down on number D letter D so this is our earth at the bottom now we're on the earth we're evolving here but we've also been through A, B and C as part of our development and we're down at D now and on the globe we go through several root races what they call root races and these different races of course link in with this idea of the Lemurians the Atlanteans, the giants, the gas giants and all the other structures before they came down to the human form and we are now the fifth root race on the earth and we're the fifth sub race of the fifth root race and I'll explain more about that in a minute so we're on globe D and it's the fourth one down, it's the fourth round and we are the fifth root race and the fifth sub race of that and this is what made me um, take my own experiences more seriously when I started to read these things in the secret doctrine and Isis unveiled I recognised things I'd experienced myself and things that other people had experienced under hypnotic regression so 
we have the seven root races on the earth and these are numbered in these columns one to seven the first two were non-humans that was probably where I was like this amoeba thing you know it was just split into two and then the third one was Lemurian which was an early race and that's where you had gas giants and giants that roamed the earth and then we had the Atlantean the Atlantean period had all of those root races in it and then towards the end of the Atlantean so what didn't get quite to the end then start again it was towards the end of that one that we started the Aryan race the fifth root race which is our root race and as we came down here we had the Hindu Egypt sub race of that root race and that took 26,000 years to evolve and then moving down you had the Aryan Semite which took 20,000 years and as you can see the, the time lag is getting much faster as you go along then we came down to the Iranian and the Celtic which together have taken only 9,000 so everything's speeding up quite a lot and we are now the fifth sub-race which is the Teutonic out of the fifth root race which is the Aryan okay so we're following that and the next one is to be called the future American apparently sorry to interrupt but how do the um, Asian races fit into all this the Japanese and the Chinese <coughs> they're supposed to be I'm not sure which one they fit in with no they're a much older they're a much older oh. root race in fact they, they do say in certain of the literature certain books that the Japanese are due to the yellow races are due to go because they're the early races so they must be one of these up here I would imagine and also you see Mongolian they're similar to Mongolian aren't they a bit split eyed so I would imagine they, come, they came at the very end of that one and yes yeah, so a lot of the older races really are, are way behind and they are due to they, they say they're due for extinction I don't know how true that is they seem to be doing quite well at the moment don't they <laughs> right so has anyone got any questions on that? I, don't, I can't tell you uh, details about all of these, but I just know that I've come across them in my readings. And so it does confirm in your mind, you know, that there is an evolution of consciousness taking place, which isn't just simply like Darwin and his apes. You know, there's something else that's been happening and there seems to be a much bigger plan that we're all part of. Right, so those are the various root races at the end here is an interesting bit that I've written down as well so I wouldn't forget we've been helped in our evolution and descriptions in the secret doctrine for example or Isis in Unveiled they tend to suggest that when you have these sort of giants on the earth they were very animal like ape like they weren't apes but they weren't sort of pretty to look at you know the earliest man but something happened and we were helped in our evolution because we then had to develop our minds which was a crucial stage in our development and until then we've been purely emotional and what happened was certain of the other chains came back to help us so just as we had the earth chain you remember those globes and we were on D that's the earth chain the chain before that was the moon chain and moon was in position D and they got to near the end of their evolution and they turned back to help us because they'd already developed more so they came to help us develop our minds and also the lords of the flame they call them came from Venus they also came to help in our evolution because they were more highly developed than we were at the time so we wouldn't have been able to develop our minds as we have without their help so it's all, there's a sort of element of sacrifice whoever um, rushes ahead and develops there are always some of them who turn back to help those who are still behind them so that's since the beginning of the fourth round which is our round you know that fourth one the globe D um, a number of adepts have also turned back people in our own scheme who've rushed ahead have turned back to help those who follow so there are always people of lots of different levels in their evolution here at one time you know, you've got those who are very wise and who are helping others and uh, that's the way it should be really the next major step in our evolution is to become androgynous is to have both sexes there's no separation of the sexes and that's what we're supposed to be moving towards but I imagine that's quite a way off yet so you know changes are taking place in people's attitudes already aren't they on your previous chart I'm sorry to interrupt again that's alright Mars which was 
circle C. Yeah. Mercury, which is circle E, fit into the scheme of things. Well, you see, the chains are made up of some planets that are manifest and some that aren't. And those are part of our scheme this time, and they are visible on the physical level. Well, but Mercury and Mars. Yes. But there may have... Actually, the sun as well. Yes. But that's not, that's not in this particular scheme of planets. So you'll find different combinations, like next time. I mean, Jupiter's in our solar system, but next time it will be a Jupiter chain, and we will have to turn back to help Jupiter, those evolving on Jupiter. So there are lots of things we don't understand yet. Well, when you said that Venus, are they not sort of spirit beings, are they, or mental beings? Well, they could be developing at a different level, that's the whole point. They might not all be physical. No, that's right. That's right. So when they look at the planets and they say, oh, it's not fit for human life, they're just thinking of solid physical human forms, but they could be evolving at a different level. And people who are psychic, they can see your different bodies around you. So you're not just a physical being, are you? You've got various bodies. You've got the astral, emotional body, and the mental body, and a psychic can see them around you. And we would have come down through all the different levels when we came into incarnation as well. So these other levels, like the Lemurian level, for example, wouldn't have been solid like us. They wouldn't have been as physical. We gradually evolved down into matter, and now we're at the lowest point. So we're at our densest, most physical now, and the way up is to go up next. So we've done the... I don't know about that. I think some beings have come from Mars to here. I think it's the other way. I think this is the centre of activity at this moment in time on the physical level. All right, as far as I know, you know. All right. We well, couldn't get much further away, could you? <laughs> the strange orbit. Yes. Yes, that's right. So, what the secret doctrine is talking about is the descent into matter. You know, you're coming down from a purely spiritual source and coming down into matter. And of course, the sun is the centre of the solar system and it's the solar logos who's supposed to be the centre of activity in our system so when we have our massive expansions of consciousness we're eventually supposed to merge with the solar logos itself which is the being it's like people are beginning to realise that the earth is a living organism aren't they and it has its own life and it has its own aura just as individuals do and it's the same with the sun and the sun is the most gigantic being you could say and you can easily your, your consciousness for example um, could merge with the consciousness of the planet and in, in an expansion say through meditation or something else but that wouldn't be the highest it could go to it's supposed to evolve ultimately to the sun to the solar logos and I've heard, I've heard it said that you can't go any further than that because we're, we're limited to our solar system so I don't know what happens after that it's all a bit of a mystery really isn't it right so um, Blavatsky um, she talks about the descent into matter in her book and I'm just going to read out now a little bit about various rounds and races on globe D our earth so she said man initially in the first race um, was an ethereal being, non-intelligent but super-spiritual. And correspondingly, on the law of analogy, in the first race of the fourth round, um, that's our round, all right? So in the beginning, there is a correspondence between the first race that ever was on the first round and the first of the fourth. In each of the subsequent races and sub-races, he grows more and more into an encased or incarnate being, but still preponderatingly preponderatingly, they use strange words in those days, ethereal. He is sexless, so originally he, he, he wasn't of a particular sex. And like an animal and vegetable, he developed monstrous bodies, correspondential, she said, with his coarser surroundings. So that's the giant stage. You know, the, the earth was in its basic state and so was man. So that's when you had all the giants. The second round, he is still gigantic and ethereal, but growing firmer and more condensed in body. So he's coming down towards the physical. A more physical man, yet still less intelligent than spiritual. For mind is slower and more difficult evolution than is the physical frame. 
So you have the evolution of form, which apparently happens much faster than the evolution of mind. So we are now at our present stage, we're almost perfect as beings, as human beings, but we're now developing the mind. And we've been at this stage for quite a long time, but we're taking us ages to develop our minds sufficiently. <laughs> You're a perfect being. <laughs> The third round, he now has a perfectly concrete or compacted body, at first the form of a giant ape, but now is more intelligent, or rather cunning, than spiritual. For on the downward arc, he has now reached a point where his primordial spirituality is eclipsed and overshadowed by nascent mentality. In the last half of the third round, his giant stature decreases and his body improves in texture, and he becomes a more rational being though still more like an ape than a diva, a diva being more of an angelic being. All of this is almost exactly repeated in the third root race of the fourth round. So, again, she's referring back to our round, that globe D. So, there are correspondences to all the stages of evolution. The fourth round, the intellect has an enormous development in this round. The hitherto dumb races acquire human speech on this globe, on which from the fourth race, language is perfected and knowledge increases. At this halfway point on the fourth round, as of the fourth root race, or Atlantean race, humanity passes the axial point of the minor Manvantara cycle. What this means is, it's just a cycle of manifestation. You have Manvantara and you have Pralaya. Pralaya is like a sleep state where it's not visible and it's not, nothing's happening, it's dormant. But when it's a Manvantara cycle, it means that it's in manifestation. The world teeming with the results of intellectual activity and spiritual decrease. So they link this with us, the fourth round, okay? We're the fifth root race, the fifth sub-race on the fourth round. So according to Madame Blavatsky, consciousness evolves more slowly than form, and our physical form doesn't change much from now on, but our consciousness still has a long way to go. So we're just over halfway through our evolution because we were on the fourth globe out of seven, so now we're on the way back up and we've only got three more to go through. Um, we're just over halfway, and we're, well as I've just said, the fifth sub-race, or the fifth root race. So having descended into matter, we are now ascending back to spirit. So that's why people are becoming more spiritual, more interested in spiritual things than in their development. And this is called the process of involution, coming down into matter, and evolution, going back up. So man's now sort of lost touch with his source. Um, he's developing his mind and he's forgotten the other side of his being and now he has to get the two parts back together again basically and um, there's another writer called Alice Bailey some of you may have heard of her and um, she followed on from Blavatsky really I think um, I think she had made a she did split with Blavatsky over something I'm not sure what um, but she has a lot of books that she's written with the help of the Tibetan teacher and um, in those books, they're very interesting. There's esoteric um, astrology, esoteric psychology, cosmic files, a whole list of books, blue books, which you can find in any good bookshop. And they will also tell you about the evolution of man. But they talk very much in terms of the seven rays, which Mike, I think, is going to talk about as the next talk, so I won't discuss that bit. <laughs> and um, in the Alice Bailey books, um, there is this idea that we are made up of these two parts. The lower quaternary, which is this bottom square, which contains the physical, the etheric, the emotional and mental levels. And separate from that are the buddhic and monadic divine levels. These, um, some of these names are interchangeable and there's no set system for them but they all agree on there being four lower ones that make up the personality and the higher triad of three. So you're talking about personality consciousness or just body consciousness and soul consciousness. And apparently we have to build a bridge between the two. So you don't actually reach this soul consciousness until you build this Antikorana bridge between the two. And the Antikorana is often called, I think it's the Golden Bridge, 
there were all sorts of names that they refer to it by. I think it's a golden bridge. So how do we create this anti-Korana, which is going to make us whole? Because that's what we're after. We want to be fully realized souls. We want to be fully aware and to be fully self-conscious. Well, in these books, which um, are used by the arcane school, which is um, a method of development, you belong to the arcane school and they will teach you various meditations. And most of the things are based on these books by Alice Bailey. They teach this system and they say that to create that bridge you need to develop your mind, you need to practice visualization, you need to meditate and you need to be of service to other people. There are three things and they say you must do all of those together. If for example you just do the visualization and the meditation, you could become power conscious. You know, you might think that you're God and everyone else is lower than you, you lose your perspective, so you must serve people as well, and so there's a strong emphasis on the group, and working as a group for the betterment of mankind, so that's very important. Right, so by crossing that bridge, um, you then make this contact between your soul and your lower vehicles, and this helps you to be more synchronized in your vehicles because you know the um, bodies I was talking about earlier the astral body the mental body um, they need to be synchronized to allow the soul energy to come through so meditation is very useful for that so there is an element of working with the group for the service of humanity um, Dwal Kool also he's the Tibetan who helps his lady write her books I think she channels the books um, there is this other fundamental law and that's the law of sacrifice and the identification of the soul um, with the soul leads to a natural understanding of this law so the sacrifice is giving you know sort of wanting to love others and give to them rather than try and keep everything to yourself so I think this is um, a crisis point we've all reached now because when you look at something like what was Yugoslavia and how sort of religious ideas all getting in the way and people are dividing, they're not being united and all the efforts for people to get Europe together and to agree on things, you know, everyone's out for themselves, aren't they? See, the French, they don't want to lose out and it's the same with all the other countries and when you think about it, as individuals, we're the same, you know, because that's how we are at the moment, we've got to break out of that and it's not easy because we're all thinking, oh well, there are all these people unemployed, but I'm alright, I've got a job, you know, let's just stay at home and shut the doors and, you know, we're not moving out of that, which is I think the next stage of our development is to be to open our doors to help everybody, but that's a difficult one. Okay. Can I just make a point about the mind? You've got higher mind is normally Yes. Sometimes that's what I said. There is no set order for these. When you look at different books you'll see that sometimes lower mind is here and higher mind is there. And sometimes higher lower and higher here and Buddhist is there. So that's why I said these can be manipulated around. Even Blavatsky herself had about three or four different columns putting them in different places in different books. So they are just words really, but you get the general idea about the two separate sides. It doesn't make much sense for practice visualization, which is really a higher mind. Mm. Yes, it's a movement on from the higher mind. Which also, so obviously mm. you're thinking of developing a link between the two. You, you go for the lowest of the higher. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yes, thank you. Right. So when the Antikorana bridge is built, that's this bridge here that Dual Kool says we need to bridge the gap so that we move into the soul consciousness. And that's when we can escape from sorrow and unhappiness and all the things that make us miserable here and now because once you form that bridge it's very easy to just escape through it whenever you want. So you can go into states of bliss, like you read about yogis who meditate, go up into these states of bliss. Um, that is like an, an escape valve for you. And because your consciousness is somewhere else, not centered on this level, then you're able to um, cope with life much better, basically. So according to Dual Cool, you need to do the following three things. They are to relinquish your personality which isn't a diff not an easy one is it and act with dispassion detachment and discrimination those three things are really important and to serve others with no thought for personal gain or reward 
And also, this is the more difficult one, we mustn't interfere with the karma of other people, so we mustn't criticise them or try to run their lives, because they've got their karma to work out just as we have, and we should just attend to ourselves, unless someone comes to us for help. So, basically, since we've got these seven globes I showed you initially, we're all going to go through that, whether we um, don't make any extra efforts, we'll all go through that ourselves and end up hopefully at some higher stage in our evolution but a lot of people prefer to work at it now I mean who wants to keep being born again and again and being a baby again and having to learn to potty train and walk and all of those things it's pretty boring isn't it sort of it and um, you like to think there's something else you know there's something more important in life than just going through all of that so that's why people who want to go above all of that and want to speed up their evolution they will actually start some course of behaviour, some course of action that will stop creating more karma and hopefully work off the old stuff. So, the evolution of consciousness. Um, we can look at it as being a bit like a train journey. And if you imagine that those stations correspond to those stages in our development as root races, all right, station one and two were the non-human one. The third one is like Lemuria and then the Atlantean one there, and then the Aryan, which is what we are at the moment. And the Aryan root race, so far it's taken 55,000 years, so we've got lots of, well, thousands and thousands of years between each station. So if you imagine we're on a train, and we're at the Aryan station number five, if you just think of what it's like to be at a station, like Bournemouth Station, and you're sitting in a carriage, and you're just looking out at the platform, and what you see there is the stage of your, particular stage of your evolution. Um, you've been through four stages already, but you've forgotten about them, haven't you? You don't remember necessarily being a gas giant or a giant or any of these other things or previous lifetimes. And likewise, you don't know what lies ahead of you at station six and station seven. In fact, to get to six and seven, you need to um, build this bridge anyway to be able to get there. So you have to meditate and visualize and do good deeds to other, for other people. So it's going to be a little while before you get there. But nevertheless, they are there in your subconscious mind because if people can remember previous lifetimes under hypnosis or with acupuncture, they must be there somewhere, mustn't they? And as Shirley MacLaine said when she went through some of her experiences, she said it's just like a film being played before her eyes of all these previous incarnations that she's had. So although you're, you're identifying with this stage of your evolution, there are others that you might have access to. And that can work in two ways, because um, there was a woman in the 1970s called Helen Wombach. I don't know if anyone read any of her books on hypnosis. She regressed rooms full of people in America. And she was a brilliant woman. She was determined that she was going to, sh to prove the existence of reincarnation. So she took everyone back. You know, she'd do 70 people at a time in a room and she'd take them back through their lives, through their births and into where they were before they were born. And lots of people found that they, there was a council of beings and they were all talking to them about what they were going to achieve in this lifetime. Some of them didn't want to come and some of them um, did want to come, you know, couldn't wait to get into the world. And some of them didn't join the, the baby inside the mother until it was born because they were afraid of the birth process some of them were quite happy to go through it so it was very interesting reading her books it was, she's quite a scientific lady it wasn't like a novel it was written in a scientific way so she was a very interesting person and there were several other books there, there was a program a book that became a program on television called Bloxham Tapes and I think that was the late 60s early 70s and that showed someone's experiences in previous lifetimes as well and um, that was one woman, wasn't it? Who had eight, eight different lifetimes, I think. But that was quite an interesting one. He said, Bloxham said that he had regressed many, many people and most of their lifetimes were so dull and so boring and so monotonous. It was incredible. Um, only every now and then did they get a really interesting one. Before Helen Wombach died, she was investigating not regressing into the past but progressing into the future which shows that all of that is there, accessible as well. And she died, I think it was in 84, 85, after having done a lot of work on someone called Snow. I think it was Chris Snow. Oh, Chet Snow, was it? I knew it was a C. Right. And he eventually wrote a book 
called Dreams of the Future. Have you read it? Yes, it really is. And um, he's an American, so it's centered in America. And it was all about these natural disasters that were going to occur in America. And he wasn't looking forward to it at all, was he? He didn't like it at all. And it took him a long time to write the book. But it just shows it's possible to go forward into the future, bearing in mind that there are numerous possibilities. You're not necessarily going to... It's not, it's not fatalistic. You're not going to just experience one thing. It depends on your decisions that you make now, based on your present personality, as to which sorts of lifetimes or which sorts of avenues you will go along. I mean, let's face it, tomorrow you could go and have this tremendous conversion, couldn't you? And you'd be quite a different person in your state of consciousness, so your decisions from then on would be different. There's this massive leap that's about to take place. So it was on a, ended on a very positive note. Yes. And that this whole sort of civilization um, was very much more evolved than we are. So you, are you inclined to believe that they, these things are literally going to happen? I just have an open mind, you know. I don't think it's good to fix on one thing like that. I think leave the options open. So now we're looking at an overhead um, which is to do with the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And very often in books they don't know the difference between the conscious and the unconscious and the left brain, right brain. So they've come to the conclusion that they're probably one and the same thing. And Obviously, as a hypnotherapist, I deal very much with this idea that although the mind is whole, there are different parts within that, and the conscious mind is normally considered to be um, associated with logic, reasoning, mathematics, reading, writing, language, analysis, and the ego in Freudian terms. And the unconscious mind is to do with things like rhythm, um, visual imagery, creativity, dreams, symbols, and emotions. And that's the part of the mind that tends to also store our learned responses. So any habits and things from the past that we're trying to rid ourselves of, say for example we smoke or we eat too much or we do something that isn't particularly good for us and our conscious mind says, oh I want to stop doing that. There's part of you that says, oh no, you carry on doing it and encourages you to do it. So there's a split between what the conscious mind wants and what the subconscious says. And very often there's a repression from childhood that has resulted in that person adopting that habit. Perhaps they didn't get enough love, so they turned to food instead. So they started eating more than they needed to, and then they associated love with food, lack of love with eating, and so on. Unless you get to the subconscious part of the mind and remove that learned response to situations, that person is never going to lose weight, for example. So it's like a bit of a crutch, really. Um, so everything from the past exists within the subconscious mind and even these previous existences reside somewhere in the subconscious the memories are there because that's the part of your mind where there's memory and if people have, are suffering from stress or anxiety usually find that their memory and concentration is very poor as well and it's because there's so much going on in the subconscious area they can't get back and retrieve information very easily so this is the most interesting part the unconscious part of the mind it contains everything from the past it contains all the automatic functions in the body, things that at one stage we would have had to have been aware of and conscious of, like our circulation and digestive system and breathing. All of these things at one time in our development would have been conscious activities, but now they go on automatically. And to show how things enter the subconscious like that, you only need to think about going through various stages in your own development, learning to walk. We do it quite unconsciously now, don't we? It's automatic. But we had to learn at one stage, and we had to go through the potty training stage as well. And our bodies now have learnt that automatic response. And driving a car. Once you've been driving a car for a while, it becomes automatic. So that, is, that shows how conscious activities pass into the subconscious mind. But also, you can get access to our future development through that area as well. So it's quite interesting that you have um, access to things like universal love. You can, you can reach states like that going through the subconscious. So it's like a door which takes you um, out of just present into past, present and future all being one area if you like. So it's a very interesting idea. And to, to get into that area of the mind you can use things like visualization again and you can use your imagination again so once you start doing things that are imaginary imagining you're going somewhere you're actually getting access into the subconscious part of your mind 
So it's really quite an interesting area. Um, of course, once all of these things that you put into your unconscious become conscious, then your mind, to a certain extent, is, is growing, isn't it? Because you're understanding more about yourself. So it's important to look at that area of your mind. And of course, people who have hypnotherapy, they will actually delve into that part and they can sometimes find blockages there, repressions and blockages. And once they're removed, their development can then speed up because this, this, whenever you get blockages, like in the human body, you get disease if you get a blockage. Same thing with the mind, if there's a blockage, it can hold you back. So they get this surge of energy and they suddenly feel, you know, that they've gone through some sort of enlightenment sometimes. They feel so brilliant that the blockage has been removed. But it just meant they were operating a bit under par before when they had this blockage. So that's quite a useful thing to look at and that would be the model that hypnotherapists would look at. So how can we, in a practical way, resolve any internal conflicts and assist the process of integration? First of all, it, would, it helps to have your charts drawn up, your astrological chart, um, so that you can see objectively what you're dealing with, what your life lessons are this time. Because the tendency is, when things go wrong in our lives, we start thinking, oh God, everything's against me, you know, what's happening, what's going wrong. But if you can see it's only particular planets moving through your chart, triggering certain things at certain times in your life, and be objective about it, you can rise above it and say, well, it's only those planets, doesn't matter, you know, and you can cope much better when you have a reason for something. Just as somebody under hypnosis, if you take them back to a previous lifetime and they can see the origin of a problem, it's no longer a problem because they've seen what caused it and they say, oh, well, I can cope with that. It's not knowing that we can't cope with everything. It's just the cold hand of God doing particular things to us. Um, you know, then you're in trouble because it's an unknown factor. It's when you know about it, then you're much freer. So it allows you to have the objectivity that you need. And number two, observe your own behaviour, being fully conscious at all times of every thought, action or motive. Another thing they say in the arcane school is every night, look back through your day and view your motives for everything you've done, you know, just to see where you're coming from. It's quite useful. And also replace negative thoughts with positive ones wherever possible. Number three, face up to your fears instead of avoiding them. So many people are what I call very nice people and they are charming to everybody and what they're doing with their negative thoughts is shoving them over their shoulder. They are, they're thinking all sorts of thoughts about people but they're smiling all the time and they're being perfectly charming all the time. And um, we're all guilty of that sort of thing at some time but that sort of thing builds up and becomes a problem. And so it is important to realise that we all have a dark side. You know, we do all have, and by accepting it and saying, oh, well, I'm not perfect, you know, because I'm working at it, it's no longer a problem. But it's when you always try to be too perfect and there's part of you that's negative, it becomes a problem. So it needs to be accepted and integrated into the personality. That's very important. So anything we don't like about ourselves, what we tend to do is to push it aside and then see someone else who's doing what we don't like about ourselves and blame them. We do what we call projection. We project our problems onto other people. And certain people are very good hooks for our problems and it's easy to do, but that is not resolving the problem within ourselves, is it? And then four, meditate on different facets of your personality that you don't understand and you'll see patterns emerging that you weren't aware of before and you can trace patterns back that way. I mean, I did that through meditating over a number of years and I realise now I could have speeded up to a few weeks under hypnosis because you can actually, it reveals the patterns for you whereas you can do it the long way around just by meditating. Um, five, if you're unable to deal with your own fears and anxiety, you should really go to somebody that you feel might be sympathetic and help you to integrate yourself because what it is is a lack of integration. And what we're trying to do is to be as whole as possible, you know, to have all the different parts of our mind working together in harmony for our well-being. And number six is concentrate on a particular goal. So it doesn't really matter what the goal is, it's the act of concentration that's important because it draws all the different strands of your mind and your thought processes together and that in itself is very, very positive and very beneficial. So all of those things will be helpful 
in this process of integration but basically you do need to do something on a daily basis like meditation um, looking at your motives being helpful to other people I remember when I belonged in a meditation group we used to have a lot of fun we used to be told to do certain things we didn't know the theory behind it that I've been saying today I only discovered that later but they said we want you to go out and do good things for people without their knowledge so we'd go and clean people's windows without telling them friends of ours you know or we'd run down the chimes and pick up all the rubbish and it was very hard doing things without anyone knowing but it was so good for us you know over a period of time the tremendous changes took place within us just from doing those simple things of course on number six it doesn't have to be a, a single goal it could no. be several goals but it could be translated on yes I was going to say <laughs> I thought that was a bit personal <laughs> yes, some people tend not to concentrate on one thing at a time yes it's just the mere act of concentration yeah. that's yeah. important <laughs> Yes, that's right. <laughs>